Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 113, Valerie Hans, Guiding Jurors on Damage Award Decisions. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Valerie Hans. Valerie is the Charles Recklin Professor of Law at Cornell Law School, where she teaches torts and empirical legal studies. As many of you know, Valerie is a psychologist and one of the leading experts on juries and jury decision-making. Our podcast today features Valerie's new article, Guiding Jurors on Damage Award Decisions, which was co-authored with five others. In it, Valerie discusses the results of several psychological experiments that explore how attorneys might provide guidance to jurors in assessing damages. As she and her co-authors argue, assessing damage awards is one of the most difficult tasks that we ask jurors to perform, especially in murky areas like non-economic damages for pain and suffering. The frequent criticism that you hear about jury awards in this area is that the dollar amounts are effectively arbitrary and all over the map. There's little consistency among similar cases, and more severe cases don't always receive more money than the less severe ones. So the questions become, how do we help jurors make more consistent awards? Can we imbue those awards with some kind of validity? And can we make the process less taxing on jurors? My conversation with Valerie explores some options. Valerie, welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm very excited to be here. This paper is, of course, part of a much broader project of yours studying jurors and damage awards. As we get started, can you just give us a brief introduction to the project as a whole? What are the chief motivating questions that you are asking? Ed, I've been interested in jury damage awards for literally decades. I got excited and interested about what jurors are doing in damage awards in a project I did in the 1990s, where I interviewed a large number of civil jurors about their decision-making process, including how they and their juries came up with damage awards. And I've got to say, I've never felt so sorry for a group before because civil jurors again and again told me that they kept on looking for guidance from the court and they just weren't getting it. You know, they weren't getting it from the judge. They weren't getting it from lawyers. They weren't getting it from witnesses. They felt like they were really in a situation where they had inadequate guidance yet had to come up with a number. Maybe most vividly, a case involving the negligent removal of part of a lung of a litigant. Several jurors said to me, "How? What's what's half a lung worth? How do you value something like losing half of one lung?" And ever since I had done that project, I really thought, when I get a chance, I really want to look systematically at how individual jurors and groups come up with damage award numbers. And to be honest, can we help them? Knowing psychology, knowing law, are there ways that we could really 
tweak the process, improve the process to be able to get jurors feeling more comfortable about their damage awards and actually having damage awards that appropriately reflect the severity of the injury. So I think a natural response to the problem that jurors face in trying to figure out damages is to create some kind of schedule, much like you see in some toxic tort cases or when you have mass settlement. What are your thoughts on using those kinds of schedules? Well, if I can first just say why I think actually juries are great decision makers above and beyond what benefit might come from using schedules. In some ways, it really is the ideal decision maker in a tort case. If you think about it, the jury collectively has the ability to represent current community values by its judgments, both verdict and damage awards. It can say what it thinks and send a message about how bad, how wrong a particular defendant's behavior has been and also evaluate the worth of an injury that the plaintiff has suffered in current terms. So keeping up with what a contemporary understanding is of the significance of a particular injury. So it can reflect community values. It can be contextually very sensitive to the identities of the parties, to the context of the situation that the injury took place in. Schedules really wouldn't permit that. They can't really reflect the context-specific nature of an injury. And one of the things that worries me, well, two things. One, who is going to set these schedules? And number two, are they going to be set in stone? Will they ever change? If you think about workers' compensation, there are, and some of the caps that states have introduced, these numbers rarely change, meaning that they can't shift with shifting community sentiment and shifting views about the meaning of money. What if you did some kind of empirical study on what jurors give today? And in some ways, I think about what folks did with the sentencing guidelines, but you tried to figure out how much they awarded for different kinds of injuries and then provided that information in a schedule. Would that alleviate your concerns? It would be an improvement. But again, I don't know that it would be able to keep up with shifts and changes. And the provision of a specific number, as we've discovered now in our empirical research, and, and you know as well from a lot of other work, the provision of a number is going to have a lot of power and might lead people to latch on to that number in a way that doesn't really reflect what is happening in a particular case. Moving on to your paper, your paper discusses a psychological model of decision-making with regard to damage assessment that you and your co-author Valerie Reyna developed. And I think that model is quite important for understanding your experiments. How does that model work? Yeah, I think this might be of substantial interest to your listeners who are interested in evidence and how it's interpreted. Valerie Reyna, my co-author, is a fantastic cognitive psychologist here at Cornell University. And she and Charles Brainerd have collaborated on what they call the fuzzy trace model of decision-making. And basically their conclusion from a lot of research is that when people assess information, let's say in our case about an injury, 
literature, people mentally represented in a couple of distinct ways. There is the verbatim representation. So if we say, ah, doctor's bills for a particular injury cost $100,000, for example, that's an example of a verbatim representation. But there's also an underlying sense of what that number means to the individual. And that's what they refer to as the gist sense, the underlying sense of the meaning of the number. So a person might say, whoa, $100,000, that is a big number. That's a very large number, suggesting the injury was much more severe. So we believe as jurors try to assess the severity of an injury and think about what an appropriate damage award is, that they make these kinds of gist and verbatim judgments. And from our research, we think jurors actually do an excellent job at understanding the gist of an injury, like how severe it is, scaling injuries, talking about what injury is more severe than another injury. What they need help in and what we in our experiments have tried to test is whether or not we can actually help them translate that underlying sense of the injury, which again, contextually specific, taking into account all the features of the injury and its contact, whether you could take that gist and translate it into a dollar value that in our view appropriately represents the severity of the injury, the deservingness of a particular damage award. And how does that translation take place? I can imagine what's going on here is rather than going from verbatim to gist, you're going from gist to verbatim, but that seems to be something that is very difficult to do. It's challenging, but it is not completely quixotic. I think when people think about jury damage awards, they think this is ridiculous. Jurors are picking numbers out of a hat. Yet, as we've been studying the process, we think we've identified some understandable processes. And one of them is that we believe what jurors do is they try to match their just understanding of the deservingness of damages with a particular number that to them is an appropriate match. We think that they can be very influenced by the meaningfulness of numbers that are present in the case. For example, doctor's bills are a decent proxy for the severity of an injury. If you think about it, maybe not a perfect match, but um, nonetheless, higher doctor's bills tend to be associated with more severe injuries and lost days at work and the ways in which an injury might interfere with other processes, other ordinary life skills and activities. Those also could be important ways in which the people are affected in this translation process. So I think, again, if you have a lawyer who can do a good job talking about the meaningfulness of particular numbers that will speak to the jurors and say, oh yeah, that's a good way for us to take our sense that this is a serious injury and deserves a high damage award. You've got a good thing going. The lawyer is likely to be effective. So maybe just one example, if you remember back to one of the most famous civil cases in the U.S., civil jury trials, the McDonald spilled coffee case, the plaintiff's lawyer in that case suggested two days of coffee sales. <laughs> and that actually wound up being approximately equivalent to uh, the punitive damage award amount that the jury in the McDonald's case uh, decided upon. So again, lawyers who can generate a meaningful number that reflects in the juror's eyes, their just sense of what the deserved damages are can be influential. That's fascinating about the McDonald's coffee case. I can see how creating some kind of scale However, you create that scale would actually make certain numbers more meaningful. 
can I just say this, Ed? It does suggest that judges actually have to be pretty vigilant when lawyers are bandying numbers around in the courtroom, because we know that anchoring is a very powerful phenomenon, and our research studies have confirmed that a meaningful anchor is even more impressive and even more influential on a juror's damage award than one that is not meaningful. But still, anchoring, we know, has significant effects. And so as the trial is going on, if the lawyers are throwing out various numbers, which they might well want to do, knowing as many of them do about the power of anchoring, the judge may need to rein that in. So how does the current study fit into this broader project? What were you looking to investigate here? Well, in our whole series of research projects, we've been looking for ways to try to help them translate the gist of the injury into an appropriate matched damage award. So in prior studies, we've looked at the impact of meaningful versus meaningless anchors and have found meaningful anchors can be very influential. We also find people are mock jurors with good numeracy skills tend to be better at the matching process. But in the particular study we're talking about here, we thought we would take advantage of an approach that was recommended by a trial consultant named David Ball. And that is set of instructions that a lawyer could give to a jury as they engage in the decision-making for a damage award. His approach was that you should, first of all, reassure the jurors because the jurors were like those ones that I interviewed some years ago. They're thinking, hey, we want guidance. But he recommends, David Ball does, instruct the jurors that you need to look at three different dimensions of every injury. How bad is it? How long has it been going on and might go on in the future? And how much does it interfere with ordinary life activities or special life activities? Bad, long, and interfering. And then he further says, look, any one of those dimensions, you might have a kind of a low, medium, high value on that dimension. So just for ease of presentation, think about an injury that has short duration, medium duration, or very long duration, perhaps the rest of your life. And he said, what you need to do is rank and evaluate the injury in this particular case, and then find a number that is low, medium, or high. (laughs) So in our experiments, in some conditions, we gave no guidance, just the legal instructions that are very vague and amorphous. Try to find an appropriate damage amount that corresponds to the injury. That's in essence what our current instructions do in terms of helping jurors. In another, uh, we have David Ball suggesting, in the words of the plaintiff's attorney in the case, instructing jurors about how to evaluate and rank the injuries as low, medium, or high on how bad, how long, how interfering. And then in a third condition, we add to the low, medium, high, bad, long, interfering, his suggestion of a particular number. All right, so a low amount might be, let's say, $50,000, a medium amount, $500,000, a high amount, $1 million or more. And we then see what happens when jurors get these different kinds of guidance. Conventionally, this is where I somewhat ask my psychologist guests the unfair question of whether you could briefly summarize everything that you did in your experiment. And I recognize that for you, the experimental setup is really the key to it all. But in light of our time constraints, how did the study go? How did you actually study these various scales that you were trying to provide the jurors? Yeah, every juror or mock juror got a particular vignette that in our case involved a sports-caused concussion. 
And concussion, we were attracted to in part because of its worthiness as an important current health issue, but also because some of the effects of concussions can be quite variable. And they can also be ambiguous and hard to predict. So it struck us as a good type of injury to use that people might approach with different assumptions. So everybody read one of these instances where an athlete got injured and the concussion was the major injury. And then a third of the participants got no guidance, just regular legal instructions. Another third got the verbal guidance. Oh, rank the injury low, medium, high on these three dimensions and come up with a number that will match that. And then a third got that verbal guidance plus on top of that, a specific number for each of those low, medium, and high dimensions. And what would you say were the two or three main takeaway points that came away from the study? Well, I think one thing is we were impressed about jurors' gist understanding. They ranked more severe injuries higher than less severe injuries. They calibrated the injuries appropriately. And so the kind of instruction, the David Ball instruction about how to rank injuries was almost superfluous. I kind of came away with thinking, jurors can do this. This is something they do in ordinary life. We rank things, we scale things, and jurors are drawing on their common experiences and do a pretty decent job. So the gist judgments were good. We also found any form of guidance made jurors feel more confident that the task was less difficult and that the guidance was very, very helpful. So whether it was numerical or verbal guidance. Everybody was pretty happy with that kind of guidance. So a more satisfying juror experience, which I think is is quite positive in part because we know that satisfied jurors are jurors who find the experience impactful and it can lead to more civic engagement in the future. But we also found when we provided numbers, they did influence, especially in the severe cases where it's harder to come up with a good number we found the numerical guidance was impactful. And in particular, it did reduce variability, that is the difference across jurors, so that it had that positive effect across all of our studies. The paper that you're referring to, we had three different research projects, and the reduction in variability occurred across all of them. We didn't see the other kinds of improvements that we might have wanted to see. For example, people already differentiated pretty well between low severity injuries and high severity injuries, and the guidance didn't really help them. I think they did okay already. So we didn't see an effect on that, but we did see this reduced variability. So it seems like there is anchoring that is going on. And perhaps the anchoring does improve the consistency within the classifications of low, medium, and high. I guess the real question is whether or not you can tie those anchor points to something meaningful. And one idea that I had from some work that I've done elsewhere is that when you have, say, a damage cap, you can view the damage cap as effectively the legislature setting some kind of scale for the damages that are involved. And usually these are non-economic damages where it tends to be a little bit unfettered. What if we use those legislative damage caps as the mechanism for setting the scale? Would that be possibly a way of doing this? I know this goes back to our earlier discussion about damage schedules and the like. 
I see some similar problems as the ones that we were talking about when we discussed schedules. Uh, you know, there's, there's no contextually specific evaluation of the injury. Some of the work that I'm sure you're familiar with as well on CAPS also shows that, sadly, it disproportionately affects the most severely injured. So you set CAPS and the people who suffer aren't the ones with moderate injuries. They're the ones with life-threatening injuries or very extreme physical consequences that will last their entire lives. So it seems backward. If we're going to impose some order Shouldn't we actually protect those individuals who have arguably the biggest stake in a civil case as opposed to ones with more minor injuries? But I take your point that how do we get to a non-arbitrary anchor? I think at the end of the day, people might take our research to suggest that states that do not currently allow lawyers to propose a non-economic damage recommendations should do so because the two lawyers could battle it out too. Both of them could, in fact, propose different amounts if they wanted, but the lawyers might be in a position of being able to understand the context of the injury and what a reasonable amount might be. So it would get away from the uniformity of schedules and the lack of ability to respond to some of the distinctive features of the individual parties. Final question for you. What's next? Where does this project go from here? Well, we have in the bag now completed, despite the pandemic, a mock jury experiment. The paper we've been talking about dealt with individuals, but obviously the jury experience is a group experience. And we are looking at some different approaches to trying to guide jurors, both numerical and non-numerical, in group setting. And one of the things that we're very excited about is that we were able in our mock jury study to record all the deliberations. And so this will give us, I think, a really good picture of what happens when, for example, in an anchoring type setting, what happens to that number as individual jurors discuss and debate what an appropriate award amount is. Again, jurors are in a great position collectively to share their interpretations of the number. People might say, no, no, that's far too high, that's far too low. But the deliberation has this potential of being able to help us arrive at a community judgment that reflects the broad range of views and interpretations in the community. One other thing is that partway through the study, the pandemic hit. So we have about half of our jurors who are in person and about half of them who participate in our research project virtually. So we definitely, when we got our funding from the National Science Foundation, we never imagined running a virtual jury study, but we'll be able to contribute to some of the discussion and debate that's happening right now about some modifications to our traditional jury system. That's terrific. I was just about to ask you about whether or not those were in-person mock jury studies or virtual ones. And now I have something to look forward to with regard to that study. Well, Valerie, thanks for taking the time to talk about your project on guiding jury damage awards. Great having you on the show. My pleasure. Thanks. In a sense, what we demand from jurors in the area of non-economic damages is kind of unfair. The law provides jurors with no sense of the going rate or a sense of scale in how much pain and suffering is worth. And then the legal system somehow expects each uniquely constituted jury 
to come up with an award that is consistent from one jury and case to the next. And remember, these are jurors who oftentimes have never done this kind of valuation before. So the question becomes, can the legal system somehow provide jurors with additional guidance? And here I think Valerie's study kicks in. Perhaps the attorneys, or the court, can provide some kind of scale. The problem here is anchoring. The results of the experiments show that the guidance is effective, but perhaps somewhat too effective, that jurors are so desperate for a scale that it may not matter just where that scale comes from. And from an evidentiary perspective, we need a scale that's anchored to something meaningful. I see perhaps two ways out of this anchoring problem. One possibility is that we can peg the scale to empirical data, meaning a study of damage awards that are given today by jurors around the country. As I suggested in the interview, this solution is a lot like the sentencing guidelines, and to be sure, it would carry all of those drawbacks. So for example, while this would then promote consistency, the absolute values might be still somewhat arbitrary, and as Valerie worried, empirical anchoring might freeze awards at certain levels. The other possibility is that we can make the legislature responsible for setting the scale. To the extent that the scale is somewhat arbitrary or a value judgment that's incapable of technocratic determination in the first place, maybe we should just simply punt it off to a democratic institution. To my mind, damages caps seem to be just a way to do that. And even if you don't want to use the caps to set the scale, you can certainly imagine creating some kind of commission that is delegated by the legislature to arrive at a scale. Now, I'm not saying that this endeavor wouldn't be highly contentious, but it seems that it would be contentious one way or another. Finally, let me add that I was really pleased to have a chance to talk to Valerie about her project. I think that we evidence scholars often get a bit too focused on trial and liability determinations, and we forget that damages are a critical part of the fact-finding process as well. How we guide that damages decision-making process might not involve admissibility, but I think it involves evidence just the same. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.